Hey, everybody. On June 3rd, I'm hosting a live stream called Donald Miller Teaches Productivity. I'm going to take you through how I created my life plan, goal-setting worksheet, project management worksheet, and also a daily planner that I fill out every day. If you don't have a daily planner that you enjoy, it's because you haven't found one yet that really makes you want to fill it out every day. I think I've got one. I've been using it for 10 years. It's been really successful for me, and it really helps me organize my mind. It might work for you. Go to DonaldMillerTeachesProductivity.com today to read about it. DonaldMillerTeachesProductivity.com. And then on June 3rd, I'm hosting a live stream in which I teach you every aspect of my life plan, goal-setting worksheet, project management worksheet, and that daily planner. If you feel like you've been waking up in a fog lately, you don't have to feel that way. You can organize your mind in a very short period of time. Just sign up at DonaldMillerTeachesProductivity.com. Welcome to the Building a Story Band podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., yes. how vulnerable are you willing to be in public? What's the line? Oh, it depends on the public. <laughs> it depends well, on the public. Uh, in context, <laughs> yeah. this podcast... Okay, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm starting to get a little sick to my stomach, but I'm going to say I am fully vulnerable. Okay. Well, I, tr- I, I trust these people. We've we talked about trust a while back. So yeah, and I think I it's important to trust, and I think breaking trust is terrible. Yeah, so I'm going to be vulnerable. Okay, All right. Let's do All right. this. Well, the other day when I was at your house, I grabbed your journal. Okay. I brought it with me here today. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Something interesting is on page 76. Which one? Because <laughs> I have lots. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do you really keep a journal? Uh-huh. Oh, you yeah, do? Yeah. I, I write. Don't. I try to write something every day. I don't always. Do you really? Yeah. I don't always, but it like- And that's been a healthy exercise for you? Yeah. Probably, to be very honest, here's vulnerable. Yeah? <laughs> During the quarantine, not as much. <laughs> really? What, yeah. What's the reason for that? I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I've gotten out of rhythm and everything. It was kind of a hard, like- just kind of everything else that was going on, I just didn't make space for it. But I love to, especially on a nice day, go back on my porch with my cup of coffee and I just sit out there and I just Is it write. vulnerable? Is the text yeah. vulnerable? Like mm-hmm. if somebody read it, we'd be like, <gasps> Yeah, but it's not something that like I haven't shared. Like it's not deep, dark secrets. I'm pretty, yeah. I'm a pretty open person. When you and I hang out or we hang out with kind of our, uh, like the small group, then like I share those. It's like, yeah, things are hard or, oh, this was not a good day. Like I don't really keep things bottled up too much. I used to describe it as a wall that people couldn't get past. Mm-hmm. And my wall, I think, is much, much taller than the average person's wall. But it's way further back. Does that make sense? Interesting. So I like will you, say things about my life that almost nobody else will open up and say, but at some point you're going to hit a wall. And you're not going to go. And we're it. not going there. Yeah. I would say that. And a lot of it is true. about, it's insecurities about fear and, you know, yeah. uh, not winning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so other people would go, I'm sorry, you're vulnerable about not winning. That's right. <laughs> like, that's really vulnerable. <laughs> that's called an Enneagram three. I'm a little bit that way, but my wall, I would say, really is super, super high in the sense that, like, I will let anybody in pretty quick and share mm-hmm. things pretty quickly. But if I sense at all that you're going to use that vulnerability against me, the wall comes yeah. right up and we're done. No like, kidding, it's right? Done. It's yeah. done. I won't share anything with you at all. Yeah. I'll also use vulnerability as a way of weeding people out. Yes. Most religious people, if you will, yeah. are actually quite vulnerable. But there's a subculture within that group that sometimes I find myself interacting with yeah. 
Yeah. And they're not. I mean, they are not going to let you know anything that doesn't make them look like a perfect Christian, if you will. Yeah. And I recognize immediately that's what they're doing is they're accumulating leverage. Yeah. Right? They're yeah. not going to let you have anything that you can use against them. And I'll immediately just give them a bunch of stuff they can use against me. <laughs> so, so you don't ever have to worry about it. <laughs> well, no, if they because find out about it later. Because I recognize it's all bull. Yeah. Because yeah. I know that this doesn't cost. I've been doing this my entire life. Yeah. Read my books. It hasn't cost me anything. Yeah. Anything. So I don't care. Yeah. Except for there is a wall that I'm like, well, I'm not going to put that in a book. Yep. Right. That's that's too much. But I can't think of anything that would be like humiliating if it came out. Oh, do you There's want me no... to say a few things? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we probably haven't recorded. To, yeah. Do you it's probably to... been edited. Yeah, exactly. Out of <laughs> Those are things that I turn to Chad. Go, Chad, that cut yeah, that out. Yeah, cut, cut that, that out. out. Yeah, my staff will go. He can't be vulnerable yeah, about that. Not I, I'm always like, but words. it was funny. Put it back in. <laughs> like, no, no, well, no. There's a question that I've had for a long time as I've pivoted from sort of memoirs, where I was very vulnerable, to business books where I'm not talking about myself. So it's not, mm-hmm. I don't even have the opportunity to be vulnerable. Yeah. Well, there's a guy named Dave Hollis mm-hmm. and Dave Hollis is uh, one of the founding partners of the Hollis company. Rachel Hollis is the other one. Uh-huh. Dave wrote a book called Get Out of Your Own Way. And I pick up this book and from the first sentence, I go, he's going there. You yeah. are kidding me. He's going there. Yeah. You know, it is a self-help book, but he was a, an executive at Disney. Yeah. And so, of course, his life is business, and so it gets into a lot of the business stuff. But he's actually changed my perspective a little bit on whether or not I should be vulnerable inside of business books. How? Well, I just don't think it just doesn't feel like the right genre yeah. or the right voice, but Mike Michalowicz does it. Uh-huh. Uh, Dave Hollis has done it. And I don't know, I might want to do that. I might want, yeah. you know, in a book about communication, I might want to say, you know, here's a dumb thing I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, you know, and it, it's certainly entertaining. But I thought the book, Get Out of Your Own Way, was just super, super helpful in the sense that it gives you a sense of peace that you're not alone in the world, mm-hmm. but it also is informative and inspirational. But, I, you know, I dominated the front half of this conversation with, why are you being so vulnerable? <laughs> what are you getting out of that? How much money is there in that? Yeah. <laughs> you can read the mm-hmm. subtext of the conversation. Mm-hmm. He's a wonderful, charming guy. Uh, Chad and I just had a great time. Chad is our producer. And after we got off the call, we just thought, there's a guy you want to have the microphone. It's Dave. Yeah. He's really a great guy. Anyway, you know, how vulnerable should we be as leaders? You know, does it cost us something? And we get into the philosophy of that in this conversation. Here's my conversation with Dave Hollis. Dave, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here. Okay, from sentence one of your book, you are uh, more vulnerable than the average man. Yeah, not intentionally, not something I ever thought I would be. And it's something that I have become over time. But yes, uh, that first part of my book, I decided, you know what, let's just go all the way. (laughs) I wondered about that because weirdly, the book is actually down in my study. I was reading it this morning and and I'm about halfway through it because I've been reading for the last week. But I still remember the first sentence and it's literally like, uh, forgive me for butchering it, but yes, I've had uh, two glasses of vodka and yes, it's uh, one in the afternoon and yes, I'm actually babysitting right now. (laughs) I mean, it's just like right from sentence one, you actually go there. Before we get into that, by the way, this is also an exceptional business book. So this is, talk about a category where nobody does that. And of course, you redeem all of that. You talk about, I mean, your stuff on 
your coping mechanisms and dealing with your coping mechanisms and being able to walk away from them and choosing whether or not you're going to embrace the pain in order to grow rather than just stop growing and escape into alcohol or TV or ice cream. Ice cream is my choice or whatever is exceptional stuff, but we're going to get to that in a minute. I want to know how long did it take you to agree with yourself to put that first sentence in the book? I'll even go back further because that first sentence actually describes a situation where I had myself been handed the first draft version of my wife's book that changed many things in our life called Girl, Wash Your Face, where it being printed out on eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper, binder clipped together, I'm reading it and the way that I am processing her decision to be wildly more vulnerable than I ever thought any human should ever be has triggered me into drinking my way through my first reading of this book, right? Because at the time, I, right, at the time, I have in my mind decided that vulnerability is a liability. Did you know that you decided that or she woke you up to the fact that you had decided that you had made that mind up? What's interesting is I don't know that I was conscientious of how much I believed that it was a liability. I had worked for a long time in corporate environments. One of the jobs I had as the head of sales at Disney was the person who talked to the press. And so my ability to spin a narrative, to paint the optics, to shape the story was always a part of what I did. And so something that would violate this thing I'd spent 20 years of time doing professionally by just piercing everything and saying, nope, this is exactly how everything actually goes down, felt like, man, it's going to put our family at risk, the work we've done to manicure the optics on Facebook and Instagram, the way that we've convinced our family, our, all of it. And I actively tried to convince her to not release the book, a wow. book that has gone on to sell 4 million copies, a book that I, because of this work we decided to do get together, have been the beneficiary of seeing from thousands of people, how they were impacted by her willingness to be vulnerable. And so it was because of the way that people responded to it and the way that they, seeing themselves in her stories, were able themselves to start to make some traction in their own lives that I said, you know what, maybe I have some stories that I can tell, but I now have turned what I believed was vulnerability being a liability into vulnerability being a superpower. And so if I now believe that's true because of what I've witnessed in her work, I'm going to have to go there too. And so I decided to start my writing with what are the things I could be most vulnerable about and see where it takes us. And man, it was hard. <laughs> it was hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's part of, I think, why, you know, like the stories connect. As man to man here, is there also a part of you that said, well, that works with women? For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, how did you process that? Because I find I've been decently vulnerable in my past books. Now I write business books. I'm not super vulnerable. I'm more trying to help people make money. But, you know, there's been times when I've wanted to break that voice a little bit in my business books. I haven't done it. And I've fallen back into the narrative. Well, you know, that's Glenn and Melton. That's Rachel Hollis. That's Anne Lamott. You know, dudes can't do that quite as much. And in the face of that, some of my favorite books are Born Standing Up by Steve Martin. Man in Black. Have you ever read Man in Black by Johnny Cash? No, but I uh, oh, now I will. Dave, <laughs> you're going to read that book and you're going to realize you held everything back and Johnny was actually vulnerable. I mean, he's got Charlie Pride 
trying to fall asleep and Johnny Cash is in his hotel room crying, confessing all of his sins and Charlie Pride is past caring. And he actually wrote a chapter apologizing to the country legend Charlie Pride for keeping him up all night, confessing while he was high on cocaine. It's a brilliant book. It's an absolutely wonderful book. So we weren't the first, right? You weren't the first. Somebody else went before. But even in the face of that, I struggle with, well, well, men don't do that. You know, men need to hold the line and kind of not show their emotions so much and all that kind of stuff. How did you process that particular aspect of being vulnerable? So I had a good life, a great life, a, a good work environment, good family. And I, at this weird bridge between 30 and 40, hit a funk. I hit a midlife crisis kind of moment and then spent time digging out of that crisis. And as I was coming out of having absolutely been in my way, not showing up as the husband Rachel deserved, not showing up as my four kids deserve. I had to ask myself, where has pain consistently shown up in my life if I am interested in preempting it showing up in the future? And the thing as I was trying to identify where it had shown up consistently that every single time was there was dissonance, huh. was me knowing that I could be a certain person or that I aspired to be a certain person or that I uh, believe that I have been afforded gifts from our creator to show up in a certain way. But when I was by myself, head on pillow at night, I knew I did not show up that way. And the space between what I ought to have been, what I wanted to be, what I've told other people I am and who I know myself to be when I'm by myself, that's shame, that's guilt, that's underfulfilled potential. And my pain in that dissonance is a thing that I have tried to close the gap on so that I can get a little closer to self-actualization, so I can get a little closer to fully using my potential, so that I can create integrity between who I tell people I am and who I know myself to be. So the question was, how do you become comfortable being authentic or being transparent or being vulnerable? Well, I found when I was putting on a front, when I was convincing people that everything was okay, that I was great when things were not, that I was exacerbating the dissonance that existed in my life in a way that was creating pain. And the only way that I was able to create power out of my experience was to own it. And so in a crazy way, like I wasn't very comfortable with it at the beginning. I wasn't very comfortable with it, frankly, at the beginning of even writing the book. But in the midst of writing the book, Rachel and I start doing this business that has me in a relationship podcast, in the live streams we do every day, in the way that we approach social media, talking so candidly and honestly about the struggle of the struggle, that I, in owning the way that I have experienced my pain and how I have learned from it and grown better because of it, it changed the way I thought about talking about it in a way that was creating that integrity between who I say I want to be and who I know myself to be when I go to sleep at night. And so as I'm writing the book, the experience of just being more vulnerable is giving permission to the vulnerability that ends up coming through in the pages, but that also is creating, again, that, that coherence between who I'd hope to be and who I know myself to be when I'm by myself. A lot of people, when they feel that cognitive dissonance between the person that they are pretending to be or that they want to be and who they actually are, they don't adjust the person they actually are. They adjust their expectations of what they want in life. They reduce those expectations. Nobody can live in cognitive dissonance. It, you've got to bring the two together in order to create integrity. And most people sort of reduce, they say, well, you know, 
I guess I'm not going to be as fit as I can possibly be physically. And I guess I'm not going to make as much money as I wanted to make. And I guess I'm not going to be as good of a father. You know, they adjust the expectation or the, you know, what we call the aspirational identity and lower that. You are doing the work to actually raise the person you are to meet this person that you want to be. That's a different path. What's your motivation to actually not say, well, life is too short to, you know, have to be in peak physical condition and reach my dreams of writing books and building a company and actually being a good dad. That's too hard. I think I'm just going to watch Netflix with a good percentage of my time and settle on, you know, what some people would call a mediocre life, but I call it a comfortable life. Yeah. Why is it that you specifically need to work so hard to reach your aspirational identity? Well, in the midst of my season of unfulfillment, I was in the backyard with one of my children, seven-year-old at the time, Sawyer, middle son, and we were doing what we do in the hot tub, playing a game, Ask Dad Anything, where my kids ask uh, usually gross and ridiculous things because they're all boys and they're young. And uh, he asks a super benign, what is your biggest fear? He's reaching for spiders and scorpions and out of my mouth falls, (laughs) not living up to my potential. Wow. Right. And here's the thing. It was not a like premeditated answer. I didn't give a ton of thought to it. It was the thing that just escaped from my being. And as I said it out loud, I recognized in real time that I was living into my greatest fear, not living up to my potential, because the circumstances of my professional life and even some of the circumstances of our personal life had become so comfortable that I wasn't being pushed into growth. Right. I was just getting by. I was okay to be okay. And in living in that, I was living into my greatest fear. And so it led me on a little bit of a hunt to understand why I found myself in that situation and what it might mean to actually pursue the full exploitation of the gifts I'd been afforded. And what I realized was that I cannot be fulfilled if I am not growing. I mean, it took a little bit of work with a therapist. I started reading books and sat in the audience of a personal development conference or two. But I really came to appreciate that I had for a long time had certainty and comfort as a priority in my life, as a commodity that I reached for. And it was coming at the expense of feeling the thing that I'd hoped for in life. And that if I was interested in actually feeling the way I'd hope, then I have to be in in a posture of growth. And so the thing that I was able to tap into to create motivation for it, because I was struggling to feel like doing it, there's plenty of days even now where I don't feel like trying to create the integrity that we were just talking about, I had to create a visualization. And a lot of people will create a positive visualization of what is possible if they were to actually live into this best case version of their fully utilized potential. And I went the opposite way. I created a visualization of what it would look like if I didn't. And so here I was at 40, and I created a very, very clear motion picture in my head vision of my 60th birthday party dinner. Wow. Where my kids, who at the time, they're nine, seven, and four at the time, now they're 29, they're 27, they're 24. Our daughter was not even yet part of our family, but they're sitting around the, the table as adults. And I am imagining the way that they are, as we go now to toast, how they have experienced the two decades of time 
between this moment in the spa and us sitting at that table. And there are two very distinct versions of the way that that dinner goes. One version where they are sobbing with their pride for how accomplished I was as a person impacting our community, the way I loved on my wife, the way I inspired them to become the parents that they've become. I'm crying because they're crying. The waiters are crying. And there's another version of the dinner where not all of my kids attend the dinner. Hmm. And the ones that do, when they're asked to raise a glass and say something about the way that I showed up for my life and them in those last two decades, only can muster the word cheers. I I can start crying about it right now, right? And so when I'm able to connect to the cost of inaction, I'm like, I got to go chase down this integrity because if I get to that dinner and I'm still, there's still shame, there's still regret, there's still unfulfilled potential, I won't be able to live with myself. Yeah. Let's go. Gosh, that's incredible. That makes me want to do the same thing. And, And I've thought a lot about the 60th birthday party. And it used to be the 50th birthday party, but now I'm getting too close. I got to push it out. Right? <laughs> I, can't, I can't change enough in the next two years. But um, there's something in your book that strikes me, and it's this, and, it, and this is a deep philosophical question. And I know you're familiar with these writers. It seems like uh, Viktor Frankl would say, you know, the point of life is not to arrive. It's not to achieve the aspirational identity, or at least that's not where you get your sense of meaning. You actually get your sense of meaning from growing just from the decision to grow. Yeah. Nietzsche would say, you know, it should be the aspiration of all of us to achieve the Ubermensch, to achieve the Superman state, which they don't necessarily contradict each other all that much, but there's an emphasis maybe with Nietzsche on arrival. And with Viktor Frankl, there seems to be arrival isn't the point. Movement is the point. You seem to sign more with the Viktor Frankl side of things. And I'm wondering... Have you reconciled the fact that you may never actually achieve whatever it is that you're fighting to become? And even if you do, the natural design of this world, if you're a spiritual person, it's God. If you're not a spiritual person, it is just the facts, the Darwinian brutal facts of our reality. It's all going to be taken away from you. You can't take any of it with you, which Anybody who overthinks that, it becomes demotivating. Have you ever grappled with everything I just talked about? And what I really mean is a sense of futility when you wake up in the morning. Why am I even working so hard? I can't build anything that I get to keep. Yeah. Well, number one, I disagree a little bit with the last statement, but I'll get to that in a second. I definitely have. I didn't mean it as a statement that I believe that. That would be the roots of nihilism, right? Yeah, no, good. And I wasn't, sorry, su- suggesting that you agree with it necessarily, but I 100% believe that the pursuit of impact, the pursuit of unleashing your potential to be a light that affects other people, that uh, in their being affected changes the way that they show up for their kids and their kids' kids. It's a thing that, to me, has a ripple that goes forever and ever and ever. And so... I'm super connected to and committed to this idea of maximum impact, whatever that ends up being. And the pursuit of it being as big as I can make it is the thing that I am going to perpetually be chasing. But Because it's fulfilling in the moment to do it? I mean, I know it's hard. It's sacrificial. But sacrifice can also be fulfilling. Because I have previously pursued things that were more about the pursuit of me versus the pursuit of they. Hmm. And the pursuit of me 
never, ever actually filled my cup in the way that the pursuit of Bay yeah. has. I've literally heard that from every accomplished leader that I admire. They went through a phase when they realized that life was not about them. They needed to live it in large part for other people. Yeah. Every single one of them that I admire. And it was always a crisis point, a dark realization, a grieving of the dreams they used to have because none of them, they found out none of them were fulfilling. Let me just answer the very first part of your last question yeah. is I absolutely have reconciled that there is not a destination in my journey, that I am on a journey which has a singular goal, which is to every day be better than I was the day before. And it may be, if you're looking at health, better with my mental health, my spiritual health, my emotional health, my physical health. When you're talking about relationships, it may be better in how I am showing up as a husband or father, better in how I am pursuing the support of our team. But better, just generally, is a you know thing that's aligned, obviously, with growth. And growth is the thing that is what is truly producing fulfillment inside of my life. It happens that in having had that tipping point where oh, this isn't about me, it's about they, my working on better in pursuit of impacting other people is also something that is now compounding the benefit of me feeling the sense of fulfillment that comes from both me focusing on growth and how that growth magnifies the work that I'm doing to affect other people. And so, I mean, I can remember when I was working at the Walt Disney Company, worked there for 17 years, when you hit a certain threshold of leadership, every year you had to write a letter to where you thought you would be inside of the organization 10 years from then. And when I first was writing the letter, the, when I became a VP for the first time, maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years into my journey, I was writing the like most ridiculously audacious, I'm going to be the CEO of the company and here's the path I'm going to take. And as time went by, as I got closer and closer to the table or was invited into the room or I had the taste of what it felt like to be compensated or the access that came from becoming a member of the academy or whatever it was, right? The things that I thought were going to light me up on the inside and make me feel the value and the worthiness and the whatever else, there was a shallowness and a hollowness to them because in part they were pursuits about me and not they. And so this decision that we make, you know, probably four or five years ago, but truly left LA for Austin two years ago, is a reflection of the byproduct of that realization crystallizing and forcing action so that we could pursue something of more meaning. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Dave Hollis in just a moment. You know, as I listen to this interview and as Dave talks about imagining his 60th birthday and what people will say, that to me is unbelievably inspirational and motivational. One of the tools I use to get to that climactic scene, having earned a nice moment, if you will, is my life plan. I created it myself. It's super simple. Most life plans that I've gone to are so complex that I just get lost in the weeds. I like things to be super simple. I created this life plan and I read the results from that life plan. That is the vision that I have for my life almost every morning. And when I do that, it sets the compass in my brain and tells me which direction my life needs to go. Reading that life plan helps me make good decisions all day so that I become the person I want to become. 
I also have a goal setting worksheet, project management worksheet, and then a day planner that I fill out every day. I created them all myself. They're kind of best practices from a lot of the stuff in the industry, things that I liked. And I just enjoy filling this out. Every working morning, I sit at my desk and I fill it out. And by the time I'm done, it takes me about 15 to 20 minutes to read my life plan, go through my goals and fill out the day planner. I'm not in a fog anymore. I know exactly what I need to get done that day. If you'd like to experience something like that, go to donaldmillerteachesproductivity.com because I'm teaching a live stream on June 3rd. You can actually sit there, you can download the planner, three-hole punch it, put it into a binder and sit with me for several hours and we will fill out your life plan, your goals, we'll analyze your goals and I'll teach you to use the daily planner that I've been using to organize my life for a long time. These things don't have to be super complicated. In fact, I think the more complicated they are, the less we will actually execute, the less we will use them. This one is simple. Donald Miller teaches productivity.com. Donald Miller teaches productivity.com. Let's come out of this quarantine organized to accomplish a clear vision in our lives. You don't have to wake up in a fog anymore. Donald Miller teaches productivity.com. Your book is actually broken down into the lies that you found were keeping you from growing. And there are 19 of them, and each one is, each section of the book is filled with paradigm shifts. Uh, you've got the lie that my work is who I am, the lie that the things that have worked are the things that will work, the lie that, uh, that you have to have it all together, uh, that a drink will make this better, that I did something wrong, so I am something wrong, that everyone is thinking about what I am doing, on and on. Every one, when you read it, you just go, wait a second, I believe that. There's part of me that believes that. There's a few that I just want you to elaborate on, if you will. If you want all 19, you'll have to get the book. Uh, the book, once again, is called Get Out of Your Own Way, and you can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. But there's a couple that piqued my interest. One is everyone is thinking about what I'm doing. How did you come to that conclusion, and what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think all of us, in some way, there's some ego and vanity that lives inside that has, as a part of our identity, a belief that everyone is focused on or in some way concerned with the things that we do. It's part of what creates the fear of failure that we have. It's part of what has us worrying about whether us taking a step in direction A or B will be judged by other people. And I went through this experience where I knew that to have the kind of fulfillment that I was looking for, I needed to leave this company, this experience that I'd had for 20 years inside of entertainment for something else. I had to leave what I knew for what I needed. But my decision to make that change was delayed because of worrying what people inside of my circle might think of me making a choice that made sense to me, but not them. And then I left, right? And then I left. And in the book, I detail, like I left and after having left a thing I was a part of for 17 years, where I was head of sales for seven of those 17, I actually concocted a conspiracy theory in my mind that they had, to a person, agreed to not contact me. That when I sent emails, they would not respond to me because of their decision that I now was a competing media company. Mm -hmm. And they had to, at any cost, keep me from you know having any of their relationship, their expertise, their camaraderie. And of course, that was a lie. It was ridiculous. They had no devious, nefarious plan. They were just focusing on their work and themselves because they, like anyone who's listening to this, is human. And as humans, we are all primarily focused on ourselves. And so the gift 
of this transition was the clarity on how little anyone is actually ever thinking about any of us. And that if you can connect to the freedom that comes in that truth, you can now go and pursue your calling or take a chance at that thing you don't yet have the skill for or write the book or do whatever, because your worry of what they might think is predicated on them actually thinking about you, which they are not. <laughs> which is actually quite relieving. Oh, yeah. The, the audience that is watching you is not as big as you thought. They are just trying to survive. They're not actually waking up trying to keep you from surviving. That's right. Yeah, it's a huge epiphany. This one is very interesting to me. Lie number seven, being right all the time does not make me an ass. <laughs> Can you explain that? <laughs> well, if there were a debate team at any point in my life, I would have applied to be captain. I Really? Are you a oh, trial yeah. lawyer uh, in heart? I am a trial lawyer at heart. I am someone who 100% thought about uh, transactions and negotiation and winners and losers in almost every kind of interaction. And that was a losing mentality. And so... My having been brought up in more of a transactional, if I lose, they win, or if I don't make my point, then I'm wrong kind of mentality came at the expense of me actually building the kind of trust that might have made any relationship stronger, may have created some triage moments in the collateral damage that was done in the relationship I was trying to trade value with in the first place. And it's just, you know, in a world where life, in fact, is short, not the way to actually enjoy the experience. And yeah. so I think it's something that just comes with maturity of years and time and maybe the insight that comes from mentors who are further along their journey. But the more that you can appreciate that, yeah, you know, it, it does actually make you an ass when you try to be right every single time, because in a world that is as complicated as the one that we operate inside of, Right has so many different shades of gray. There are right sides to every argument that you could possibly take. And maybe there is a benefit or gift in trying to understand someone else's version of hmm. what they believe to be right as an attempt to soften some of the sharp edges of your heart or create a little bit of empathy or to remove some of the hubris that suggests you understand their experience without understanding the rationale behind their position. So it's just one of those things that took time. I joined the sales organization at the Walt Disney Company as a younger person. And part of my interest in always being right was in some ways a mask of some of the insecurity that existed of me being found out as not actually understanding the business as well as someone who'd been in it longer. And so the veracity with which I fought to be right in business settings in the earliest part of my career was really just my insecurity of not having as much experience as the person sitting across the negotiating yeah. table coming out and, uh, and man, that undermines my credibility. That makes me someone that doesn't really get as much as they want out of a deal. It, it, you know, it was uh, short-sighted and naive and, and I think more than anything, a sign of some professional immaturity. It's one of those things you learn over time. Well, you've got a lot in the book, a lot of lies about uh, relationships and how you relate to other people, including the lie that you know what they've been through. Uh, when you may not, and also the lie that you know what she needs, when in fact you may not know what she needs. But you've also got a lot of really great business advice. I mean, it's a whole life balance kind of book. And lie number 19 is one that I'd like to talk about. I can achieve balance if I work hard enough. And I think that's the intuitive, especially for Enneagram 3s, Enneagram 8s, high Ds on the disc test kind of stuff. We just think we can work our way into peace. 
And I'm curious about your revelations that you realize that hard work isn't going to achieve this for you. The headline is, uh, we'll cut to the chase, the balance is not real. Uh, that The idea of you being able to actually create an environment where you have predictable outcomes in a world that does not care what you're interested in is a, a fool's errand. And so my argument is, if you can fight for centeredness, right? fight for ways to create equilibrium that might sustain itself in the guarantee of the imbalance that life will inevitably throw your way any given week, then you may in fact have something that feels more balanced in an imbalanced world. And so I, I talk a little bit about how to approach front loading, you know, getting ahead of what inevitably you know to be the most likely things coming your way in a week, whether it's how your calendar might unfold, the kind of foods you might want to uh, eat and thinking about them ahead of time, the way that you might dedicate yourself to some self-care, how you'd hope for some relationships to unfold with planned date nights or whatever it might be. But thinking about how the week will unfold, how the month will unfold before it does, and organizing your life, organizing your habits and routines in a way that engineers the most likely outcome that you'd hope for, acknowledging that you are you know, inevitably not going to be able to control whether COVID-19 shows up or whether one of your kids gets sick or whether you know, one of a thousand other things ends up happening on a random Thursday in the middle of summer. As I've grown as a professional and just as a person, I've realized essentially that, that you have to hold two contradictory ideas in your heart at all times. And that is that uh, you know, great progress can be made and uh, you can control that and you are in charge of your own destiny. And much of this life is just not in your hands. And it's almost like you have to understand both at the same time in order to really have any kind of peace. There was a guy, I met him a, a long time ago, his name was Bob Hen, and Bob created uh, Gore-Tex. He created the chemical compound that created Gore-Tex. Here's a little story about Bob. Bob created a valve that they could put into the artery that goes to your heart that will stop you from having a stroke. And they literally put that valve into Bob's artery and it stopped him from having a stroke. So he's the only guy I know that created something that saved his own life. Wow. Um, but Bob actually said to me, we were talking about some theological idea and I was trying to understand it. And Bob said, Don, you, you got to understand in the world of science, there's no such thing as balance. Everything is always self-correcting, always at all times self-correcting. And it sounds like that's what you're saying here. Yeah. It's a book that that is very relieving in many ways. It's a peaceful companion, your book is, but it also is a coach that is saying, hey, we didn't hit our time. We need to swim a little faster. We need to run a little faster on this next lap. It pushes you as well. And one of the lies that you believed and speak against is that you can phone it in and be just fine. 91,000 people are listening to this podcast. All of them are, you know, some sort of leadership capacity. And every one of them probably has talents. You know, if they're listening to this podcast, they're working on themselves. They have talents. And I would think it'd be tempting for all of us to occasionally phone it in because we absolutely know we can hit a double. And if you keep hitting doubles in the game, you're going to stay in the game. When did you realize that you needed to do more than just phone it in, that you needed to actually swing for the fences every time? Well, I mean, it came truly through a series of unbelievable mentors in my experience inside of entertainment and, and outside as well. But when I had this realization of this integrity being my mission, that I'm you know, looking to try and align 
who I know I can be with who I actually show up as on a regular basis, man, that was a big point. But there was a, a time early on at Disney, and I, and I referenced this in the book, where I had a meeting with Steve Jobs. And he, in this conversation, represented this idea of every single interaction that someone has with your brand or with you as a personal brand as either being a deposit or withdrawal every time. And it's common sense. I mean, I think if you think about it, of course, yes, you every time you have an interaction with anything, you either think more of it or less of it every time. And uh, as he's talking about it and some of the ways that they thought about the brand they were building at Apple at the time, the experience that someone was going to have with any individual piece of equipment or the interface inside of something they developed was always coming back to, are they going to think more or less of the company because of this interaction? And as we were talking through it, it came into this personal side. It was, hey, as a person, every time you walk into a meeting, every time you prepare for the meeting before you walk in, every time you take the follow-up notes out of the meeting and actually act on them or don't, you are having either a brand withdrawal or brand deposit for the way people think about you inside of this work environment, inside of any environment. And so when you think about phoning it in, I mean, I think back to when I was in gym as a kid and my teacher turned around and it was time to do sit-ups, I'd stop doing sit-ups, right? This isn't gym. This isn't fourth grade. This is your life being witnessed by the secret shoppers that exist every single day in the environment around you. And your decision to leave them with a brand deposit is a conscious and deliberate one that will change the way that they think about you and your personal brand. And so if you can stay connected to that, there isn't ever a time when no one's paying attention. There isn't ever a time when someone say, you know what, I got to say that Dave, he really got back to me in a, in a quick way. He really got back to me with the information I needed. He came prepared to that meeting. He he gave me the thing that exchanged value in a way that made me think of him as a valuable partner in this meeting, in this world, in this exchange. And so I'd challenge you, listener, if you could think about every single time you send an email, go to a meeting, have a Zoom call, do frankly anything, are you going to leave the people who've experienced or received the value that you're trying to exchange thinking about you in a way that adds a deposit in the bank that you were building for your personal brand? The book is Get Out of Your Own Way, A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. My guest is uh, Dave Hollis. Dave, uh, this is a relieving conversation and a stimulating and challenging conversation, as is your book. Thank you so much for the gift of your time today. Oh, I appreciate you having me. Thank you for having me on. You get what I'm saying, right? Like, yeah. we could be more vulnerable. Yeah. It feels okay. It sure does. And yeah. it builds a level of trust between you and your audience in a big way. Right. But the interesting thing that I have found, and this is, it's not really anti what we were saying, but I have found that when you choose to be vulnerable, oftentimes then you have to then continue being vulnerable in the sense that like when you make a platform out of vulnerability or out of a specific piece of your story that you share, then you actually then kind of become known for that. And then people ask you about it and you speak about it often and you get asked to talk about it often. And so I would say that, you know, when at the beginning we talked about, am I vulnerable about my life? And I'm very vulnerable with my close circle of friends. But there is a level that I think sometimes I say, I don't want this out there because I don't want to make that a piece yeah, of my platform. Yeah. No, I, you know? I hear you there. And I think you're hitting on something important there yeah. in the sense that you might be willing to be vulnerable, but... Yeah. 
you're going to have to talk about this forever. Yeah. It was funny that, uh, you know, Betsy, when Betsy and I got married seven years ago, you know, she has this wonderful family that I greatly admire and they're pretty conservative. Uh You know, I mean, it's old school Louisiana family. And I probably had five members of the family come up to me and say, your books are so vulnerable. Do you, (laughs) do you ever regret? And I'm literally sitting there going, I don't remember anything vulnerable yeah. about any of yeah. my books. Yeah. Like, what was, I don't remember being vulnerable about uh-huh. anything. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, it's just a different generational thing to take these kinds of risks. And, and I think there are actual some generational rules. Yep. But I find myself wondering all the time. You know, it's no secret that, you know, in 10 years, 15 years, whatever, I'd love to run for office. I'd love yeah. to go into civil service and, and use some of the, the way I think to maybe organize some better ideas for our government. Yeah organize some better policies for us as a whole. Yeah. You know, if God gives me that opportunity, today I find myself saying, you probably shouldn't talk about that because, you know, that might come back and haunt you or whatever. Yeah. It's a fight. And, you know, somebody like Dave in this interview has really helped me reconcile and say, well, if the real you can't get elected, the yeah. real you shouldn't get elected. Yeah. And if the system is broken and real people can't be real and be chosen to lead, then the country needs to suffer the recourse of a broken system that elects people who hide. Yeah. And I think to some degree we're suffering that now. Yeah, for sure. I always err on the side of vulnerability. Do I mean, you? Like, yeah. I mean, I really try to go there. But I think there are some times where you, you want to think through, like, where are those moments that – and it has nothing to do with getting allowing people to know me, but when you have a public persona – then it goes, okay, well, this is, am I comfortable talking about this for the next 10 years? It's in the public. Your books are out there and everybody has read them. <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> like what know you said it. 20 years ago is still being you brought know, up I today. watched a documentary. I don't know if I told you about it. I told Kula about it because all three of us need to watch it because we're planning a new podcast where Kula joins us yeah. and that's going to come in next year. And so I said, all of us need to watch this documentary about the Beastie Boys. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah, the, yep. the two remaining Beastie Boys, you know, one of them passed from cancer yep. several years ago, I think in 2015. And it's just literally them on a stage going through a slideshow of the history of their band. Yeah. It's really touching. And if you had fun listening to the Beastie Boys, you love it. And there are things they regret. You know, one of them wrote a song that was kind of cute at the time, but it was demeaning to women in a jokey kind of way. And times have changed, yeah. and you know we just don't do that anymore. And, yeah. it, and it actually, now you listen to it, and you go, "That should have been offensive to us then." Yeah. And a member of the press said to him, "Aren't you a hypocrite speaking up for women's rights when you wrote that song?" And he said this, and I thought it was brilliant. He said, "I'd rather be a hypocrite than to stay the same forever." Mm. <laughs> I just thought yeah. That's really I love a that. great way to say it. Yeah. So it's comforting to me to know. That somewhere in the future, you can actually look back and say, you know what? I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was wrong. And I think we're so afraid that that's going to cost us something. But the reality is people are attracted to consistency and they are also attracted to vulnerability. Yeah. They're attracted to both. Yep. And it's not one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Dave Hollis, what a great conversation you stimulated. Love it. His book is Get Out of Your Own Way. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books. Dave, thanks for coming on the show. Say hi to Rachel for us. We're so grateful for what you guys are doing down there in Texas. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's latest record, Dive Deep Hushed, on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.